Uh, it's it's Berlin and it's April, you know. Like I'm just changing as much as the city is. Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. I'm your host, Ian McCourt. And boy, dear listener, have the gods smiled upon you today. Not only do we have Paddy Higgs. Hello, Hello. Paddy. Hello. Not only do we have Danny Isroff. Good morning. But we also have, back after an extended break away from the podcast, we have Nico Durbin. I'm back, yeah. If this were the sort of podcast where we had sound effects, this is where we'd have all the clapping and cheering and and, and everything that goes with that. Yeah. What have you been up to, Nico? Um, Mostly I've been busy working, you know, outside of the podcast studio. Proper working. Yeah, proper working. We've also noticed that he's been working on his look. He's yeah, he's, he's been under, shopping. That's what he's, he's been. He's undergone some sort of transformation. Uh-huh. We're trying to put our finger on exactly what it is. Brooklyn hipster sort of comes to mind. It's like 1990s Brooklyn, I would say. Not that I was in Brooklyn in the 90s. But that, that's what it looks like. <laughs> Definitely to me. pretty fly for a white guy. That's for sure. Hey, yeah. uh, it's it's Berlin and it's April. You know, like I'm just changing as much as the city is. To go with that hipster look, Nico did turn up today on um, what looked like some sort of fly racer style fixie bike. I don't think it was a fixie, but it was definitely a, some sort of vintage racer, wasn't it, Nico? Yes, indeed. <laughs> I bought it off a good old Australian friend who left the country. Ah, okay, yeah. Well, while you've been away, Nico, the Bundesliga race has, well, the race for the title has sort of, it's petered out, it's died a death. But there are some other interesting things going on, more towards the other end of the table, and especially at Hoffenheim, where Julian Nagelsmann has taken charge. That's true. Can you maybe, for those out there who have better things to do in life than uh, follow the fortunes of Hoffenheim, could you maybe uh, give us some background to, to Nagelsmann? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, I mean, first of all, Hoffenheim, it's, it's, not, even a, it's not a club that's followed a lot here in Germany. You know, when they started in the Bundesliga, they started with a crashing uh, first half of the season where they ended uh, on the second, but then they dropped in the midfield and that's where they've been ever since. Um, Hoffenheim is a club that has a lot of money because they have a a, a rich backer here in Germany, which is quite rare in Germany. But um, other than Wolfsburg, for example, they put their money more in, in their youth academy. And that's where, where Julian Nagelsmann also um, learned how to coach, I'd say. Um, so he, he's not just the youngest Bundesliga coach ever. He's also the youngest under-19 um, champion in Germany as a coach. So I, think, I think it's a really cool role model um, that it's not just about 17, 18, 19-year-old players who can make a difference, but also coaches who can just like bring a new wind into the old dusty and he's done pretty well so far yeah he did he did really well he so did. when he took over hoffenheim were second from bottom seven points from safety exactly and now i believe they're up to uh, they're above the line yeah they're above the line they're into the safety zone yeah i What's, mean it's it's still pretty tight down there uh, let's be honest um so but, hope stevens was in charge he's taken over from him what's he changed what's he changed i think um hope stevens was also I don't want to say tired. He he never really looked tired, but he he had two really tough seasons at at Stuttgart before 
twice in a row he uh, saved them from being relegated last minute and then he took on that mission again in Hoffenheim really at the beginning of the season and it was really a long mission and it was at the end at the end health issues that that stopped him and then um Nagelsmann was already nominated to be the coach of Hoffenheim by the start of next season. So it was a bit controversial when they decided to make him the lead coach in the middle of the season when they're playing against relegation as a 28-year-old. Um, but what has he changed? He, I think, um, has a really clear way of speaking to players. He knows exactly what he wants and he has that Tuchel esque kind of um, defining tactics into the deepest detail um, and takes the time that he needs to explain that. Yeah, I mean, one of the other sort of differences, and I totally agree with you, Nico, um, and just at this point you should sort of uh, say that he actually worked with Tuchel at Augsburg briefly as well. So um, he's, he's learned a little bit from that. But um, he also came in and changed a bit about the personnel. So Hoffenheim were relying or were at least attempting to rely on a few sort of senior players like Kevin Karani and uh, Perman Schwegler as well. And both those players have, have been cast aside by Nagelsmann. So he's come in, he's made his own changes as well with the personnel, which is I guess the really most interesting thing for me about a 28-year-old coming into a club and managing a squad of a lot of these players are older than him and have played the game professionally. And, you know, his career didn't get out of the, the under-19s because of injury. So how do you come in and, and command respect from, from guys like Kevin Karani, who's played, you know, international football, he's played in several different countries as well? It's a, That task in itself would be the hardest one for Nagelsmann. And I think it, at this stage it looks like he's pulled it off, which is incredible. Wins will help him do that. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, maybe there's a bit of a Mourinho sort of similarity or comparison you can make here. Well, he has been called a mini Mourinho. He has. No, I've heard that. I think they have a kind of similar story in that both of them never really had a playing career. And so they, they have an approach to the game that, that, that's a little different, a different perspective, where they have to be more studious because these things that, that, that players know from being on the pitch, the, those don't come naturally to them. Uh, so I think that's an interesting um, an interesting comparison. I just want to go back to what Paddy was saying. I think, I think it works both ways with a young coach. So on one hand, yes, you have to, you, you have to earn the respect, of, particularly of the older players. But on the other hand, I think... Uh, when players can relate to you because you're their age, especially they had an older coach before who, who maybe can feel a little out of touch at times. And um, sometimes when, when the coach sort of is on your level and speaks to you like an equal, that can help the, the, the team atmosphere as well. And I think that's, that's really made a big difference for, for Hoffenheim. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I mean, if you, if you imagine a football manager world, right, and... We, we know it when we also when we play FIFA or whatever, there's a list of attributes for players. There's the pace and so on. There's how good are they in headers and shooting, etc. But w what are the attributes that actually define coaches? First of all, in Germany, we don't have that coaching slash managing role that we know from the Premier League, right? So the coach is, most of the times, the coach is on the pitch leading the training. So there is that um, demand for really scientific coach who knows how to educate uh, educate players and I think that's what might differentiate him like he knows not just how to hold a motivational speech and so on he knows how to teach techniques and tactics on the pitch Monday to Friday 
And that might also explain um, why these sort of younger coaches are ha- perhaps given a few more opportunities in Germany as well. You know, Nagelsmann is not um, is not his responsibility to look at the transfer policy um, over the summer. Um, he will obviously have a say on, on which players come in, but that will be somebody else at the club, just like it was for Klopp, just like it was for Tuchel, just like it is for just about everyone, um, um, perhaps Guardiola aside, maybe, um, even though Summer is there to do that job. But yeah, this is why perhaps those opportunities are there um, in Germany to have those sort of younger starts because it really is defined into that coaching role. Yeah. Uh, so his arrival at uh, Hoffenheim has seen them shoot up the table. They're now up to 13th. Um, Nico, your beloved Stuttgart, <laughs> they're right back down there. Yeah. How are you? I mean, we've given. Have we given up on Hanover? Hanover are gone. Yeah, they're gone. Yeah, they're gone. Okay. Who do we see from Frankfurt, Bremen, Stuttgart, Augsburg? It's pretty tight in there. Well, Bremen is still playing in the semi-finals of the Pokal. You shouldn't forget about that. But they're playing against Munich this week, so uh, I wouldn't get my hopes up as a Bremen supporter. Honestly, I I think it's time for one of those three to drop out. It's Bremen, Hamburg and Stuttgart and they, the three of them, they thought they are playing mid-table this year. Um, especially like towards actually the last three, four weeks when Hannover and so on, they were playing really bad. Hoffenheim was almost gone as well. And those dinosaurs, Hamburg, Bremen and Stuttgart, they're, they're collecting their points now and then, you know. But now they lost two, three games in a row, and they're back there. So I think one of those are going are going down. Like yeah, I Hanover think, plus one of the three. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think Frankfurt are probably done, and uh, I think you, I think you're right. I think Augsburg are probably going to edge away. Hamburg are in pretty awful form at the moment, um, but have a you know have a little bit of breathing room. But then I think it looks like Bremen or Stuttgart for me in that third bottom position, which of course goes into the relegation playoff. Um, just to go back to Nagel's man for a moment, 28 years old and he's in charge of a Bundesliga club. How bad does that make you feel? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> what were you doing at 28, Paddy? I wasn't a... It wasn't the complete you, screw up you thought I might be actually in, but... Were I you in charge of a Bundesliga club? No, I certainly couldn't manage myself very well, let alone, you know, uh, a squad of, of grown men. Um, yeah, no, I, I couldn't imagine myself in that situation. I mean, uh, you and I are the only ones over the age of 28 in the in the, in the the podcast here, but... Um, young looking, young looking. Of course, still, yeah. yeah. It's because we probably haven't managed any Bundesliga teams. We've still got our youth. <laughs> So what were you doing at 28? Uh, oh, geez. I think I was just about to leave Australia for, for Germany. So Well, it's funny you should say that because I was just going to Australia. There you go. At yeah. around that age. Yeah, so Australia I was sort of lost something amazing and gained something awful at the same time. Well, it's swings, a bad year, wasn't it? Swings and roundabouts. <laughs> uh, but it was one of those years where you sort of escaped reality for a year. So I went and, I went and lived and travelled around Australia. Nice. And then travelled uh, from... Hong Kong to London overland. That's what I was doing at 28. I wasn't, so I wasn't managing a Bundesliga club, but you know, (laughs) I was hanging out in various parts of Mongolia and Russia. I'm sure you were the subject of many podcasts along that way as well. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) Not quite as many as you would think. Um, Now, Danny, it's lucky that we have you here because we want to talk about France and you're a France football expert so I'm told yes yeah, so, well they tell me where do you where do you want to start Monaco's Champions League collapse Marseille being pants 
your love for Hadam, yeah. your Hadam, your Hadam Ben Arfa love? Well, I, I think the first two, um, it's interesting because uh, Monaco just played Marseille. Okay, let's go with that then. And, and, and beat them. Um, let's start with Monaco maybe at the, at the kind of uh, top end of the table. Um, so the story with Monaco is that they were kind of smooth sailing into second place uh, at the beginning of... March, they were 23 points behind PSG and I think uh, eight points clear of Lyon in in third place. And it looked like they, they, they were basically destined to finish in second place. Uh, since then, they've run themselves into quite a bit of trouble. Uh, Lyon actually briefly overtook them for second place. And uh, now we have a real sort of Champions League fight on our hands. I mean, there, there are three teams that qualify for the Champions League from France. One of them is obviously PSG. And then uh, below that, we have Monaco, Lyon, Nice, Saint-Étienne, Lille and Rennes, all within uh, seven points of each other with uh, four games to play. Um, That's pretty interesting. It, it is pretty interesting. I think it's it's uh, by far the most interesting thing that's happening in France, because obviously the title <laughs> title is decided in, uh, in February or March or even before the season, I guess. Um, and and it looks like the relegation teams are pretty set as well. Maybe they're one or two at the bottom. Um, but no, it's a, it's an interesting battle, and I think the question we have to ask is how did how did Monaco get themselves into this position? I mean, it looked like they were assured of of Champions League qualification. And obviously, they they spent a lot of money on their team in a few years ago. Um, well, they're not scoring a lot of goals. Th- they? They're not scoring a lot of goals. I think it's one of those situations, and maybe you can compare it a little bit to Barca, where they they seemed assured of something and kind of mentally uh, checked out a little bit. Um, and it's an interesting kind of team because they have a combination of sort of older established stars and then really young, inexperienced and, and quite talented players. Um, and I think what's happened in a funny sort of way is the older players have have become fatigued it's a it's a long season their manager leonardo jardin has been has been talking a lot about uh, uh, about the fatigue of his team and the the younger players are just inexperienced in these kind of positions they think okay we've we've locked down second place we can kind of coast to the rest of the season and they've they've got themselves in a little uh in a little trouble now okay who do you think will eventually take those two spots Will it be Monaco and Lyon? So it's interesting. I think Lyon are in great form. They've had a really terrific second half of the season. They were down in ninth or tenth at one point and have just stormed back. I think they've uh, only lost one game in their last 14 or somewhere around that. Um, I, I think you have to look at the run-ins. And it's interesting because Monaco play two teams in that group that I mentioned. They're away at Rennes and away at Lyon, which is the, that's the huge game on the penultimate, penultimate uh, round of the season. And uh, Lyon play three of the, the bottom four sides, so you can easily see them getting nine points from, from, from those games. Uh, and then uh, it's going to be down to, to whether Nice, probably, who's the, the team in uh, fourth place, um, can overtake Monaco. And I think they just might, because they Oof. have a pretty handy... Uh, Handy player on that team. It's a big call. Oh, yes, yes. Good segue, Danny. That I'm, is I'm, 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 I'm looking up to Ian. Is what, a, what a natural that is. Yeah. Eh? Yeah. Maybe you won't need me for much longer. Um, obviously, any listeners out there, you don't get to see the glimpse into our newsroom during the day. But Danny has a lot, a lot of time for, for Adam Ben Arthur. Should we be playing a bit of James Brown in the background? <laughs> Probably. Just that might have set the mood. Yeah. <laughs> He's been 
From what I've seen, he's been brilliant. Yeah, yeah, phenomenal. Um, and he he's the he's the kind of player who everyone's seen in highlight reels down the years, and and he's shown glimpses of uh, of such phenomenal ability, and it's kind of all come together for him this season, which is which is great to see. That's been the thing; he's always looked great in those YouTube clips, but it's mm-hmm. this season he's done it on a consistent basis, and he's done it against the bigger sides for Nice. Absolutely, he has he has sixteen goals now. Um, he's when you include assists, he's directly involved in about forty percent of. Uh, of Nice's goals, and he he really is the driving force that has them up to uh, up to fourth in the table. That he's he's I guess his ability really hasn't been in question that much. You know, maybe his consistency a little bit, but um, I think you can probably throw that down to um, where his head was at at several times. Um, and you know, his discipline has been a probably something that was a constant theme in England. Um, how has it been? I mean, is it is it something that he's improved on this maturity to get to this sort of output? Uh, I, I think he has, and I, I can't tell you exactly what the reasons are. I can speculate. I think he's reached the stage in his career where he realizes he's 29 now. It, it's kind of now or never uh, for him to fulfill his his potential. Um, I think he's he's really enjoying being back in France. I think Nice is a, is a great place for him. And uh, he's developed quite a relationship with the manager, Claude Puel, uh, who I think sat him down before the season and and they had a really good chat and said, look, we're going to do this, we're going to work together. Puel has basically set up the entire Nice team around Ben Arfa. And there's some players who... who Maybe kind that, of, that's what he needs. A, exactly, yeah. I was about to say. There's some players who kind of uh, crawl into their shell when they're given that much responsibility. I think Ben Arfa is one of those players who who really, the more the more you give him, the more he gives you back. Um, and he's in this he's in this free role behind the two strikers uh, where he he can basically operate anywhere uh, when Nice are on the ball and then the the two strikers often um, fall wide and track back basically doing his running for him so the system is really built for uh, Hatem Ben Arfa to thrive and and he's really repaid the the faith from Claude Puel. You see this a little bit where, where players regain their feet at a club, often a smaller club, where they are given this sort of responsibility. Of course, the, the form improves and then you get some big clubs coming back in with some interest. And obviously PSG have been linked again recently, um, I think yesterday, with really some strongly. renewed yeah. interest. Um, you've mentioned how he's responded and, and prospered to that setup that they've got um, you know, at Nice. He's unlikely to have that at PSG. Is it a risk for him to do that? Is he better to stay a big fish in a small pond? Or, um, yeah, I, I think there are two sides to it. On uh, one hand, there is a risk. Uh, I, I think he, like I said, he's really thrived in in this Nice system, and uh, he's not going to have the same kind of responsibility. He's going to have to work harder defensively. For example, at a at a bigger club, there's no doubt about that. Uh, on the other hand. He's such a talent, and uh, I think his talent deserves uh, the chance to shine at the at the highest level. Um, they've they've talked about the big clubs in Italy. They've talked about PSG, uh, Atletico Madrid, uh, and I really think he he's shown the maturity now where he deserves the opportunity to 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 show what he can do at one of those clubs. Is that you and Nigel Clough in your profile picture on Twitter? Brian Clough. Oh, Brian Clough, yeah. Brian Clough, yeah, 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 yeah. I was, I think I was, uh, there was about seven, I think, in that picture. I noticed your your hair was noticeably lighter, Nick. That, and that I got, that I got, uh, by that age, I'd got really 
quite darker as well. When I was about, when I was really young, I was like white blonde. It was it. it, it, it people just people don't believe that it, that's their pictures of me when I show them to. Yeah, it's just it's just a, such a nice contrast with your beard and dark hair. Now I love it. Well, now I'm now I'm swarthy, and uh, um, back then I was a blonde angel child. <laughs> Uh, right uh, joining us on the line to talk about Aston Villa and their steady march towards ignominy is the Guardian's Nick Miller Nick when Randy Lerner bought the club in 2006 he declared that Villa's aim was to compete at the highest level within the Premiership and in Europe yet the defeat to Man United on Saturday has seen them relegated for the first time since 87 where did it all go wrong? Well, I mean, where to start? I mean, back in those heady days, everyone everyone loved Randy Lerner. He, I think he had a um, he's got an Aston Villa tattoo on his on his car, which he might be regretting now. He's trying to sell the club. Um, basically, Lerner seemed to lose interest in them a couple of years ago, and uh, has been trying to sell them ever since. And um, that has led to their current current situation. Um, you can explain the, the the relegation. You can explain in you know any number of ways. The most basic, really, is that they lost their three best players last summer: um, Ron Vlaar, Fabian Delph, and Christian Benteke, and didn't really replace them properly. Um, they bought a kind of job lot of players from uh, from France who uh, have succeeded to varying degrees, but mostly not at all. And um, added you know, add to that, you know, being managed by Tim Sherwood for uh, the first part of the season, it's probably not a, a, a colossal surprise that they've uh, they've gone down so badly. Is there any positive that the fans can take from it all? Um, well, here's one: they can't. Uh, I, I was looking this up. The one bit of good news is they can't set the record for the most consecutive losses in the Premier League season. <laughs> um, Sunderland did that in 2003. Villa, could, Villa have lost the last nine and uh, obviously there's only four games left and I think Sunderland's lost 15 in a row. So, you know, that's something to cling to. Other than that, um, not especially. There was there was a sort of hint of um, of good news that they were at least trying to figure out what had gone wrong and build something with uh, David Bernstein and... Um, and uh, uh, and Mervyn King were uh, sort of put in charge of the club, but they resigned last night um, over some kind of disagreement um, that they haven't really specified. So unless, until until they sell the club and, and you know maybe get a new manager, um, and neither of those things look especially close at the moment, then there's not a great deal to be uh, optimistic about. Sorry, Villa fans. Nick, um, when do you think the club uh, accepted that the, the season was going to end up as it's going to? Um, I, th- I think the fact that they didn't really give any funds, uh, free up any funds in January was perhaps the first real sign that they'd maybe accepted the inevitable, even if the fans hadn't. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you could... You could see some, from the very early days that Remy Gard took over. Then he didn't. He, he completely regretted the decision. And then after January, he just looked like a completely broken man. I was quite surprised that he didn't um, resign uh, in January or, or you know, right at the end of the transfer window because they they just they, they as you said they just gave up. It's a 
it's a pretty pathetic situation, really. When you know, you, they they were they they looked in trouble in uh, in January, but it wasn't hopeless. And if they've signed a couple of a couple of decent players, maybe you know someone to some score a couple a few goals, then uh, then they might have had a chance. But but yeah, they 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 just they threw in the towel in January, and it was it's pretty pathetic to see, really. Uh, Nick, Danny here. Quick question for you. So so Villa are currently sat on sixteen points. And uh, let's be honest, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't look like they're getting any more. Um, <laughs> so so that would make for the uh, third worst points total of of the Premier League era if they finish with sixteen behind um, that terrible Derby team in two thousand seven two thousand eight and then the the mid two thousands Sunderland. Um, given the the poor points total, but not just that, also the the manner in which they've gone about being relegated. Uh, where would you rank this among the worst ever Premier League seasons? You can make a you can make a <coughs> excuse me. You can make a decent case that this Villa team are the worst ever because those two that, that Sunderland team and that Derby team they were I mean they were terrible but they were clubs filled with players that just weren't ready for the Premier League. Derby probably got promoted a season or two too early. Uh, they made some mistakes in the transfer market and they had a team full of Championship players. So it wasn't a again. It wasn't a colossal surprise that they only got eleven points. And again, that Sunderland team, they went up, came up from the Championship, having bought uh, quite a few players from the lower leagues, uh, from League One and, and League Two, and that worked fine in the Championship. But the, the problem was that they tried to do that again in the Premier League by buying players from the Championship to come up. So, uh, and you know, obviously that didn't work. So, you, you, th- th- those those two. Teams were just teams that weren't ready for the Premier League. This is a Villa team of you know they've obviously been in the Premier League for uh, for many years. They didn't buy well, but they did spend quite a lot of money on the, the, the squad in the summer. So I, I think you could make a decent case that the, the this lot are, are the worst team that the Premier League's ever seen. Nick, just a, as a continuation on that point, um, we've seen a lot of players clash directly with fans. Mika Richards and Jolly and Lescott among them. That's really added a, another element to the disappointment, um, I think, for Villa fans. Would you agree? Yeah, it has. I mean, the, the thing is, the, the, the Lescott, um, the Lescott comment, uh, the, the most recent one at the weekend, where he said that the relegation was kind of a weight off their shoulders, is obviously a stupid thing to say. But you could sort of see what he was getting at. I think more the more than you know, players saying stupid things, that more than that. More, more than that is that the players just seem to have given up in the the, the past few months. Um, they, 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 they seem to have you know accepted that they're they're going down, and you know obviously the club seems to have accepted that they're going down, and they just uh, they don't look like they've really been trying for the last few games. And I think that kind of thing is more likely to upset the fans than some of the players saying some stupid things, or maybe you know Richards uh, talking you know, talking back to some fans when they confront him. Um, so yeah, it's not ideal, but uh, I, I think the performances on the pitch are going to upset the fans a little bit more than uh, someone saying some stupid things on Twitter or something. Uh, one final question, Nick. Uh, given the quality of the teams in the Championship, do you expect Villa to bounce back at the first time of asking, or do you see them being stuck down there, sort of lead style for for quite some time? Well, I don't know about lead style because I mean, obviously Leeds there was a there was a whole other um, element to it but they've got to kind of completely rebuild the team um, as, as you know as we've seen this even this season it's, it's tough to for teams to 
and bounce straight back into the into the Premier League. So I don't I, I don't I don't necessarily see them um, sort of falling through the divisions like Leeds, but I, I can't with the, the amount of rebuilding that they have to do. I can't see them you know, coming straight back on next season. Maybe if they get someone in like Nigel Pearson, who uh, to, as manager who obviously knows the championship and um, you know, he's, he's very strong there. Um, then uh, th- th- they might have a chance, but um, they might be stuck in the championship for a little while, yeah. Paddy, there's so many to choose from. So, so many. What do you think was your low point for Villa this season? Was it the redesigned crest? Lobbing <laughs> off the prepared? Was it Flabby Gabby? Was it the Lescott tweet? The Lescott pocket tweet? Well, I think, yeah... Danny mentioned before you could write a book about Marseille this season. I think Villa would make some good reading as well. Um, to be honest, I, I mentioned it before, the, the failure to provide any sort of money of note to Remy Gard in the, in the January transfer window sort of sounded a bit of a death knell for a lot of people. But even up to recently, you know, they started Jordan Lydon, a, a youth um, a, a youth product um, in their second, not, not the game on the weekend, but the game before, um, a player who I think was the only one who was actually applauded when they, you know, <laughs> called out the names in, in the starting eleven, yeah. and you know didn't didn't uh, didn't disgrace himself in his first forty five minutes, but then hauled off at half time and you know brought on for another big name or at least a big money you know um, signing that hasn't you know lived up to expectations. So I think the fans again it just gave the fans another you know reason to be disappointed mm-hmm. with the club and um, in a in a long season of reasons. So um, I'm not saying that's the highlight, but. In a, at a time when the club might be able to actually get some positive headlines by blooding some youngsters, they're still not even managing to do that well. Right. I mean, a professional footballer not being fit with the, in the last few weeks of this season, to me, is unforgivable. This is Ag This is Ag Flabby Gabby, as the fans have been calling yeah. him. Yeah. That and the fact that their Spain and Portuguese coach turned out, or their Spain and Portuguese uh, um, scout. scout turned out to be a journalism student. And their Bundesliga scout uh, turned out had emigrated to Australia a couple of months ago. <laughs> I think I, I should apply to be their next scout. <laughs> well, you seem to know a bit about France, and they seem to have spent quite a bit of money there, Danny. So uh, you're probably about a year, year too late for the application. Next time. Yeah. What's the, where's the surname from? Where's Shock from? Out of interest. Swiss. Ah, yes, that's what we'd speculated, that it was something in that region. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Barcelona were on course for their second treble in a row. They were nine points clear at the top of the table, looking good in the Champions League. Since then, they've been knocked out of Europe by Atletico, and they're only top of the league thanks to their head-to-head record. On the line to talk about that is Enrique Schock from TotalBarca.com of the Football Collective. Enrique, uh, Pique has said it's not a crisis. Is he right? Um... In a literal sense, he's probably right, but in a football sense, I think it's pretty much as close to a crisis as you get. Well, at least in Spain, we would call this a crisis. But, I mean, the reality is we know that the run has been very bad. Um, there's all the, it's the worst run in 13 years. But at the same time, doing a double treble would have been unbelievably historic. So the fact that we're not going to do it in a in a very sort of simple sense is nothing outrageously poor. Of course, they've now made the league a lot more difficult, but it's still in their hands. And even after tomorrow, which I think is going to be the crunch game 
if they're still ahead, they have a very, very good chance of still doing a double. What's happened here? Is it pressure? Is it fatigue? Or what is it? Because, I mean, Luis Enrique is taking shots at journalists. Neymar has filmed apparently slapping or poking a, the Valencia fullback Antonio Barragan before running off towards the tunnel and possibly throwing water bottles and shouting other things. Uh, it's, it all seems like it's unravelling a bit. What's, what's happened? I think, like, in most situations, it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, it is kind of interesting how defensive Luis Enrique has been about the fitness issue in particular, um, about how he's saying that all their, all their analytics and all their measurables are saying that the players, players are in a better condition than they were, in, were last year. But I think, you know, sometimes in sports we get so caught up in all these new sciences and technologies. But if you look at the eye test, the guys, they look tired. And there was some minutes that were put up on the internet the other day that showed that the Barca front three had played more than 3,000 3, more minutes than, like, I think Bayern's top three, which was the next, and 6,000 minutes more than their Madrid uh, front three. So they've played a lot of football. I think they're tired, but at the same time, I think it's a lot of things where there is definitely a mental aspect to it where they start getting nervous. I think in Valencia that was particularly the case. It's it's sort of when you start believing nothing is ever going to go right for you and becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of uh, a few things. And for Neymar, yeah, we've seen this with Neymar before where he gets frustrated by uh, sort of the physical, um, how defenders really, like, defend him very physically. And he's been playing really poorly for pretty much the whole year. So when you put that all together, yeah, it makes sense when a young guy like that gets, you know, kind of angry. Hey, Enrique, Nico here. I got a question for you. Hey, um, you're mentioning the mental factor there a minute ago. Um, yeah. So obviously there's um, Luis Enrique, but who on the pitch is able to, to wake players around him up? Like if they're tired, mentally tired, who, who's the leader? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that's had some debate among the sort of Barca contingent. Um Personally, I think I think Pique is an important leader in the team. He was the guy on against Valencia who, after we conceded, was was filmed um, by the camera crew doing that exactly, sort of shouting at everyone and telling them, I suppose you know, not to give up and that they can come back into it. And that I think Mascherano is a leader. Um, and even though Iniesta, I think people think is a kind of a quiet guy. I think he leads in a different way. But I think the thing against Valencia, it was different to the Atletico game, which, I mean, I, I don't think there's any major disgrace in losing to Atletico. I actually think they're the, they were, I thought at the time of the game, they were the second best team in Europe. And a friend of mine said, maybe they're even the first best team on form. And I said, yeah, that's actually very possible. So, But against Valencia, I think the story was very different. I mean, they had played really, really well in the first 20 minutes. And you thought, okay, here we go. They've, they've made their reaction. But they missed so many chances. And then Valencia scored this completely free goal. And I think it's just when it's this part where your brain starts thinking, oh, my God, everything's against us. Nothing is working. And you sort of make it happen because you think nothing is going to work. Eventually, nothing works. Uh, Enrique... Danny here, and I want to ask you uh, exactly about Luis Enrique. Um, uh, he, before he came to Barca, he didn't have the greatest record as a, as a manager. He did quite poorly as, a, as a, a professional manager. He did quite poorly at Roma. 
Um, yeah. they, they finished outside the European places in Serie A. He was, a, let's be honest, a little bit average at, at uh, Celta Vigo. Uh, he won the treble last year. It's a phenomenal accomplishment. But some people have made the argument that it's a it's a great squad, and uh, you know anyone could have could have done well managing that squad. Are there any questions about Luis Enrique if he's the right man for the job? Um, well, across any fan base, there's quite a large spectrum of opinion, as you guys would know. Um, I think personally, and I think from people who follow the team very closely. I don't think there's actually doubt. I think we believe very certainly that he's a, a very good manager. And we, I, I certainly think this theory of any anyone could lead this team to this sort of treble or, you know, I think that's a nonsense theory because we've seen that before with Barca managers. I mean, Tata Martino didn't get the, the, the players playing like that. And he had pretty much the exact same squad except for Suarez. So I think there's a lot of... Um, People underestimate how difficult it is to manage players on that sort of personal and uh, e ego level and mental level. But he also did a lot of tactical changes to the team. And his Barca plays very, very, very differently from Pep's Barca. And I think that was a major factor in our success last year, is that we were unpredictable and not, not sort of the Barca that teams had sort of become accustomed to playing against and had figured out strategies to play again. So I agree with you that he wasn't good at Roma, but he was really young in his career. So it's forgivable and he's in a foreign country and et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think from the Barca contingent, or at least those that follow it a bit more rationally and closely believe that he's the wrong man. I think he is the right man. But in many ways, I think what's happened is that, you know, if you, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And Barca have always been a team that prefer a smaller squad and it has a lot of benefits, but it has other negatives too. And I think this time around, we are just seeing the negatives more than the positives. Enrique, just looking outside the club, um, who are you more worried about? You mentioned, of course, that Barcelona, you know, do have things in their own hands at this point. Um, but yeah. who do you think is, is going to challenge out of those two uh, breathing down your neck? I think they're both going to challenge and it wouldn't be outside the realms of possibility by any means that both teams, all three teams win their last five games. Um, <clears throat> I think both the Madrids are almost equally as, 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 um, as dangerous, even though they're both in the champions leagues, of course now. So now they have the ones with a bit of a heavy schedule as opposed to Barca who had a just ridiculous schedule in January and February. So I think both of them are going to challenge and there's no way that Barca can win less than four games to win the title. And I pretty much think that they have to win all five um, starting tomorrow, which is, which is the trickiest of, the, of, of their fixtures left. All right. Um, one, one more uh, from, from my side. Do you think Luis Enrique has a plan B if he fails to, to win with um, his favorite tactics? Is there an alternative for him? Um, yeah, the plan B question, that's always a fun one. Because, I mean, uh, there's a reason that those players are so tired, right? And why they yeah. are playing so many minutes. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, the plan B, that's a debate that's been, I think, around now for, gosh, almost 10 years. Even with Pep, there was that big talk. Um, um, I, I don't... 
I don't subscribe to that theory as much because I believe that Barca's plan A is usually like 99 out of 100 times effective, you know? So, yeah, you can have a plan B, when, but when plan A is so good, it almost doesn't, it's almost unnecessary. But where I think Luis Enrique made a bit of an error this year was that he rotated in a bit of a strange way and in a bit of a kind of a, he, was, he wasn't conservative enough. He played the front three too often in games where it didn't seem necessary that we needed all of them. And even some of the other guys, like Busquets, often played in games against opponents that really I think we could have put on uh, Sergio Roberto or even maybe brought up Samper from the B team and, and, and got a, a win. So I think, but at the same time, I think what people have to realize is that, you know, when you make a deal with with superstar players like Messi, Neymar, and Suarez, it's not an easy thing to to consistently put them on the bench. I mean, we it's very hard for fans on the outside to know how they react personally to to not playing. And I think that's what's very difficult is that I think personally those players made it very difficult for themselves to be put on the bench and that they would have made it difficult for Luis Enrique to do that. And hopefully this is a bit of a learning experience and perhaps a humbling experience for these megastars to show them that, yeah, you know, it's nice to go out every week together and score five, six goals together and laugh and have fun. But it's kind of pointless to do that against teams where you don't need to. And it's, it's, it's hopefully has taught them now the value of resting their bodies for the matches where they need to be at their best to, to come up against some of the better teams in Europe, you know. It's just not that important to score six goals against Getafe every week. I've got a bit of a confession to make. Go for it. I love when you start sentences like that. It's good, isn't it? I really enjoy Barcelona. Some of my favourite players of all time, Iniesta, Busquets. You know, I love watching them play. But almost more than I love watching them play... I love watching them lose. <laughs> I love seeing them lose it and act like petulant schoolboys and throw things here and throw an elbow there. I really find that enjoyable and I can't explain why. It's certainly been creeping in that sort of petulance. Um, it is a little bit like, you know, you've, you're at the top so long and it gets a bit boring and it's like, oh, it wouldn't be bad seeing you fail every now and then. Yeah. Would it? Yeah. Like like when a guy who's always the best in class gets an answer wrong. You feel this sort of inner smugness because he has failed and you haven't. Schadenfreude, I think, is uh, yes, what's the, the, the German, German word to do it. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's all from us today. My thanks to Paddy, Nico, Danny, Nick and Enrique. Uh, go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, download the One Football app, and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud at One Football. Bye.